0: The Super Bowl's here. Hey, how many people are really excited? Oh wow, we got Yes, Kurt. <laughs> there we go. So one person's really excited. How many people really are upset? Don't how many people hate the Super Bowl? Anybody? Nobody. Most people somewhere kind of in the middle. You know, you may not like the Super Bowl but you like the commercials? You know, or, or maybe um you may not like the Super Bowl, but you're gonna go shopping anyway. So People find the things they're going to do. Well, we are completing today our series on salvation is here. And we've been looking at Luke's gospel. And for the first time, Luke is going to show us uh, what Jesus, he's going to tell us what Jesus had to say. It's the first time that Jesus actually comes out publicly in Luke's gospel and says, hey, salvation is here. Um, I've come to save the world. And we're going to look at that. If I told you salvation is here, how many people get excited about that? You know, we just saying the song Salvation is here. Of course, we'd expect most of you get pretty excited about that. That's our response. But historically, the response to the message of Jesus, that he has come to save the world, has not always been that positive. And we're going to look at that response today. So you can turn, if you have your Bibles, with me to Luke chapter 4. We'll put it up on the back here. But Luke chapter 4, we'll be looking at um, verses 14 through 30. And as we start off, we're going to ask this question is, what was the early response to this proclamation that Jesus was a Messiah and that salvation is here? How did they respond? The first thing we'll see in verses 14 through 15 is um, they praised him before they really knew him. You know, before they knew him, so to speak, they they praised him. They were initially excited. Let's pick up the count in chapter 4, verses 14 through 15. Jesus returned to Galilee and the power of the spirit the news about him spread through the whole countryside. He taught in their synagogues and everyone praised him. So last week uh, in our last episode, so to speak, remember Clifton was speaking and he said that Jesus was out in the wilderness and he was praying and fasting and preparing for his ministry, for his public ministry. And then he comes back and he begins his ministry in Galilee. And that's important. Because close to 900 years earlier, Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 2, said that's what he was going to do. Can you believe that? 900 years earlier, he said the Messiah would start his ministry in Galilee. And so that's where he goes. He goes to Galilee and he begins going about in the power of the Spirit. Luke tells us repeatedly that Jesus worked in the power of the Spirit. Jesus was always connected with God because he was 100% man, but also 100% God. And this is perhaps an example for us to remember that we're not God. And so we need to connect with God through the Holy Spirit. We need to be constantly thinking about Him and working with Him to help empower us in the work that we do. Now, people got excited about Jesus. There were all sorts of tweets about Him, and people were taking selfies all over Galilee, all right? I mean, they were, they were excited about this guy who'd come to town. He was a ray of hope in a time of darkness. And they basically were we were praising him and saying, this is good, as he would come and speak in their synagogues. Their synagogues, by the way, were the place where they met. A synagogue literally means a gathering place. And Israel had had their temple destroyed and had been exiled all over the place. The temple had been reconstructed, but they were still spread far and wide. And so they would build these places to meet in each town. The requirement was you had to have at least 10 adult Jewish men. And if you did, you could have a synagogue. And so he would go to the synagogues in each town and he would talk to them about different things. But what's interesting here is chronologically, if we look at this, verses 15 through 16 is not the chronology we would assume. Between verses 15 and 16, we calculate that about a year passes. So this is like a year later passing as we go on. And the reason for that is that Luke is doing similar to what we're doing. We're not going verse by verse all the way through the book of Luke. We're taking topics. And Luke does the same. He doesn't go through every aspect of Jesus' life. A lot of that has been covered by Matthew, Mark, and John. He wants us to see the first time that Jesus, in a really full sense, explains that the Savior has come. He wants us to see that moment. And he really uh, shows us that at the beginning, Jesus was going around and he was healing people and he was interviewing people, talking with people, answering questions, getting to know them and doing miracles and teaching a little bit here and teaching a little bit there. And then he comes to this point, about a year into it, where the message becomes loud and clear what he's all about. So initially, when they see what's happening initially, they're pretty excited. Now, it's a crass comparison, but um, I can't help but think of Political candidates, right? When they first come out, we get excited about them. This is a ray of hope. This person's going to turn our country around. They're good looking. They're dynamic speakers. They have a nice personality. Cute kids. I like the way they dress. I think I might vote for them. But then we find out about their background. Do they have an ethical background? And what is their political agenda? See, initially, they liked Jesus before they knew a lot about his background, before they knew a lot about his agenda, about who he was all about. They were excited. I think sometimes people come to church because they know followers of Christ who they think are really nice people. And they come to church, and they like the music, and it's fun, and it makes them feel good. And they hear the message, and they, oh, there's something practical I can learn and maybe be a better person. And... They see the church does really good things for people in the world. I think this is a nice place. But do they really know Jesus? Do they know who he really is and who he's really all about? Have they really bought in? Now he's going to next, the statement's going to be made. The salvation is here statement takes place in this next um, passage, the next portion we're going to look at. And so we're going to pick it up here and see that um, people heard his vision. They heard the vision of what Jesus was about. And we'll pick that up in verse 16 and go through verse 21. He went to Nazareth where he'd been brought up. And on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue as was his custom. and He stood up to read the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written. The spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fashioned on him. And he began by saying to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Now, first of all, he goes home to Nazareth, that dusty, dirty village on the side of a mountain where Roman soldiers were garrisoned and where people were trading their goods in a place that historians generally uh, uh, record as a pretty gloomy place. But it's home for him. So he goes to his home. And he goes to the synagogue in his home. And it appears that this was his custom. It was something that he did on a regular basis. If Jesus went regularly to the synagogue, and he's an example for us, and we should certainly go regularly to church. It's given, I think, partly as an example for us, is that's what we should do. But then he gets into his message, and as he gets into his message, we have to understand a little bit about what the synagogue did. It gives us a little bit of background. We have more background from other places, even outside of the Bible. And what they would do is they would start with reading the Jewish Shema, or sometimes singing the Jewish Shema. And Shema means here. It starts with, "Hear, Israel. God is one. And then it goes on to talk about God in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 6 through 9. Jesus is later asked what the greatest commandment is, and he takes that, which is sort of the main central teaching of the Old Testament, Allah, and he extrapolates from it, and he says the same thing. He says, for example, in Mark chapter 12, verses 29 through 30, he says that we're the love of the Lord our God with all of our hearts, minds, soul, and strength and love our neighbors as self. That's the core. It was the core in the Old Testament. It's the core in the New Testament. It's from that that we get our mission statement that our love for God leads us to love our world. They didn't quite understand all that then, but that's essentially in a, in a way what they're saying. It's like when we get up on Sunday morning and we say we're Mountain View Church and our love for God leads us to love our world. Every time they would get together, they would sing or say the Shema to start off their services. And then a person would stand up and the attendant would take out of the cabinet this very precious handwritten papyrus paper in a scroll and he would carry it over to the person standing there. They saw the Bible as separated in two areas, the law and the prophets. The first person would read a passage from the law. He would stand up and read it in Hebrew. And then they would translate it into Aramaic, the language of the people. And then he would sit down to teach. We usually do the opposite, but he would, they'd sit down to teach. And when he was done, they had Jesus stand up. He was to read that day from the prophets. They would hand it to him. He would read it in Hebrew. They would translate it in Aramaic. And then he would sit down to teach. It appears that he had the option to choose what passage he was going to read from on this occasion. And when he's done reading it, everybody's just very attentive to listening to him to say, what's he going to say? And he says, initially he says, this has been fulfilled. This passage I just read has been fulfilled in my life. is being fulfilled. The fulfillment starts today. The things that he reads are not things that are going to be fulfilled ultimately until he returns, but they, the process begins. What he gives for us is his vision statement. You know, that's the difference between a mission and a vision statement. Our mission statement is our love for God leads us to love our world. We want to, to love God so much that it compels us to love the rest of the world. Well, how are we going to do that? That's what the core is all about. We have steps to move a person from an unbeliever to a maturing believer. And we want to walk them through that. That's part of what we do. But the whole process is to fulfill this overarching vision that Jesus has. And so his vision is all caught up in this one passage that he reads. The indication is, as we move on to verse 22, that Jesus didn't just stop here, that he kept on speaking. But rather than write another chapter about everything that Jesus said on this occasion, Luke says everything was caught up in what he said right there, right in that passage and right in that statement. He had a couple other comments to make, but that was the gist of it. And so he draws our attention to it. The passage that Jesus uses is Isaiah chapter 61 verses 1 through 2. There's some hints in this passage that he may be actually pulling from some other passages as well, which is very typical of the ancient rabbis in their rabbinic writings and teachings. They would pull from other passages and sort of insert them in each other. But primarily it's Isaiah chapter 61 verses 1 through 2. This is, by the way, a messianic passage. So that means this was a passage that was written and everybody understood in prediction and prophecy about the coming Messiah. Jesus does not say, Messiah and Christ, remember, means the same thing. He does not say, I'm the Christ, everybody, I'm the Christ. What he says is, my ministry is going to fulfill the ministry that the Christ is to have. So you get the point of what he's saying. And they'll get the point, as we'll see very shortly, of what he's saying about himself. He starts off and it points out that the Spirit of the Lord is on me. The Spirit of the Lord has anointed me. And I believe that's in reference to Luke chapter 3, verses 21 through 22, where his cousin, John the Baptist, we studied this a couple weeks ago, remember? His cousin baptizes him. When he comes out, a dove comes upon him. And it's the Holy Spirit comes upon him as a dove. And God's voice says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. That was his anointing. That was where God said, this is it. Remember, Messiah or Christ literally translated means the anointed one. And so he's saying, I am the anointed one, and this is what I'm going to do. And it's interesting as he begins to walk through his vision, what he's going to do. And let's take a look at it. He's going to take care of the poor. So far, I mean, he hasn't returned yet, but has he been taking care of the poor? Jesus always reached out to the poor. Those are the first he generally worked with. They were the most responsive as they always are because they're the most needy. And I think we can easily say that followers of Christ have done more for poor people throughout history than any other movement or religion ever. But he's saying more than that. He doesn't say here that he came to feed the poor. He said he came to preach good news to them. In, he, in Greek, the word is euangelizomai, the word that we get evangelism from. He came to share with them salvation. He came to meet their spiritual needs, not just their physical needs. You see how he's doing both? And he does the same thing with the prisoners. You know, if you go down, to the, the freedom for the prisoners is probably in reference the people that were primarily seen in prisoners those days were slaves. That was a, you know, they were the captives. Sometimes it's translated as the captives. Now, Jesus was the first to really begin to speak out in different ways and begin to, to uh, start the, the process of getting rid of slavery. And again, Christ's followers have done more to destroy slavery than anybody else. But that's not really the point here. He did not specifically deliver any any prisoners to freedom, but he gave them freedom from the world. He gave them freedom from who they were and from sin. He spiritually set them free. And you can see that with the whole passage. He both gives spiritual eyes to the blind, and he also gives physical eyes to the blind. The problem we sometimes make is we think... God has just come to take care of spiritual needs, and all we really need to do is tell people about Jesus, and we don't need to take care of any of their physical needs. That's not for us. Let other people do that. We're all going to die anyway, so what does it matter? Just take care of the spiritual needs. But that's not what Jesus says. He says we should take care of the physical needs. Then you'll have other people that say, let's just take care of the physical needs. I take care of the physical needs, but don't ask me to tell anybody about Jesus. That would be kind of embarrassing. Well, that's the greatest thing you can ever do is see somebody come to live forever in heaven. What does it matter if you help take care of their temporary needs if you're not meeting their their eternal needs? These two actually come together. Can you see that? He intertwines it beautifully in this poetic passage. And And he shows us that spiritual transformation always has social implications. Spiritual transformation always has social implication where it's not for real. The needy are most receptive to the call of Christ when the followers of Christ are loving the needy. And when a person comes into a relationship with Christ, sincerely comes into a relationship with Christ, they can't help but care for the needy. And it works in a cycle like that. And so Jesus says that that's what should be happening here. And he goes on um, to, to leave out verse 3, by the way, which, says that, which talks about judgment. And most believe that's because he will come again for judgment for those who, respond, who do not respond and those who reject him. But right now he has come for salvation. And if we were to summarize what he's saying here, we could say that Messiah's ministry of preaching and healing was to meet every human need. Jesus came to meet every human need. He came to save the world. And he will give everybody an opportunity to respond spiritually. And to all who do, one day he will physically establish a new heaven and new earth and allow those people to live with him forever in heaven for eternity. That is the message that salvation is here. And we can still participate in that message today. In fact, he wants us to participate in that with him. Nearly 50 years of age, Bart Starr got the message when he was the first Super Bowl hero. And he began to realize that God had given him a gift to play football, but also an opportunity to be a role model for kids and to use his position to help care for charitable organizations. And that's what he began doing. He was very open about his faith all the way along. Everybody knew that he and his close friend and favorite wide receiver, Carol Dale, had a Bible study on that Green Bay Packer football team. And today, Bart Starr is still in the center of it, along with many other men who have joined him, especially with the Fellowship of Christian Athletes. And there's been a tremendous outreach that takes place on Super Bowl Sunday. And a lot of physical needs are met. A lot of spiritual needs are met through those initiatives. Now, that same thing can happen on a smaller scale in our lives. We use the gifts and abilities, our expertise, whatever it is, to care for those around us, but also appropriately to tell people about our relationship with Jesus. We find ways that we can serve charitably in the community and appropriately tell people about the Lord. Whether they come to know the Lord or not, we still love them and take care of them. But we still give them that opportunity and talk to them about the Lord. That's what we do if we're following Jesus' message. Now, they respond in a negative manner to this, which may be surprising to you, but the people rejected him, his own people. Let's pick it up in verse 22. It starts off positive and then it goes sour. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son, they asked? Jesus said to them, surely you will quote this proverb to me. Physician, heal yourself. Do here in your hometown what we have heard that you did in Capernaum. I tell you the truth, he continued. No prophet is accepted in his hometown. I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the sky was shut for three and a half years and There was a severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, but to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha the prophet. Yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. All the people in the synagogues were furious when they heard this. They got up, drove him out of the town, and took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him down the cliff. But he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. These are the same people Jesus grew up with. You know, the people that we read about that he was hanging out with earlier when he was a boy and traveling back and forth to, um, to Jerusalem for the, uh, for the temple, to the temple for the Passover. And first, they were excited about him. They felt he was a great speaker. Nobody argued about the fact that this dude knew his rhetoric. He was a great speaker. But then they begin to express some skepticism that we don't really always pick up that much in this next portion of this verse where they say, isn't this Joseph's son? It expects a positive response. So they're sitting in the the audience, so to speak, in the synagogue, and they say, isn't this Joseph's son? Yeah, it's Joseph's son. It comes over more, and there's two other accounts. The same story is told by Matthew and Mark. Matthew tells the story in Matthew chapter 13, verses 53 through 58. And Mark tells the story in Mark chapter 6, verses 1 through 6. And they say something very similar, but they go a little bit further. Isn't this Joseph's son? Yeah, it's Joseph's son. Isn't this the carpenter, you know? Yeah, this is, this is the carpenter. Isn't his mother Mary and his brothers James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas? And Don't we have his sisters among us? Don't we know this guy? Who is he? So have you ever heard somebody and you said, Man, that guy is a great speaker, but I'm not for sure if I agree with what he's saying. That's what's happening here. And even closer to home, have you ever had a situation where you grew up with a runny-nosed kid... And, you know, you kind of knew all the background on this person. And somebody comes to you and tells you that this person from your hometown has become famous. And you say, are we talking about the same person? Okay. So they've come to hear him because they've heard all this stuff. But they can't get past the fact that isn't this the same guy we knew growing up? He's just one of us. He's just another lowly guy in this lowly village. And so that's that's part of the problem here. And Jesus jumps on it. And he says, "You know, I, you're saying to me, you know, you're telling, you, you're saying, we're going to take medicine from you. You want to be our doctor? Well, you need to take your own medicine. You're no better than we are." And he uses um, proverbs to talk about this, but that's what they're basically saying: you're no better than we are. And he says, "I understand. I get it, guys. I know the proverb that a prophet is you know, generally, you know, proverb is never always true, but generally true that a person." A prophet is never welcome in his hometown. When somebody becomes famous, a common person, and he comes back to town, the people say, I knew him when he was nobody. I got stories on him. They don't respect him like they should. I know it's typical for you not to respond to me, but don't make that mistake. Don't reject me. Don't reject a prophet. Prophets have been rejected before. I want to come reach the world, but I want to do it with you. Don't miss out on this opportunity because that's what happened. Remember, you've studied this. That's what happened with Elijah back in 1 Kings chapter 18. The people rejected him, so he went to a non-Jew. That's what happened to Elisha. There were lepers in Israel, but he only healed a non-Jewish man's man from leprosy according to Second Kings chapter 5. Don't reject me. There's serious consequences if you do. And what did they do? They right away reject him. They're very offended with what he says. Let's put ourselves a little bit in their shoes to try to understand where they're coming from. First of all, they're nobodies and nothing, and who is he to say that he's not? Because they know his background and where he came from. They knew that in his culture, if he was a carpenter, he was not in a very high position. He came from an unimpressive position. He didn't have the training and experience from a major university or anything that most of the rabbis did. So he, had, he was uneducated, unimpressive position, and they probably knew about the rumors of his past, how his mother was pregnant before she was married to his father. He wasn't, you know, they, they were seeing him from different eyes, and they weren't that impressed. They couldn't get past that. But here's the bigger problem they had, and I really believe this is much bigger than that. The bigger problem was he was not meeting the expectations that they had for the Messiah. They knew he was claiming to be a Messiah, but he was not the Messiah they wanted to have. They wanted a Messiah who was going to be a social, political, military hero who was going to conquer Rome and put them in power as a nation again to conquer the world and make them world rulers. And he was saying that he wanted them to have a spiritual relationship with God and take care of the needy. Well, they considered themselves the needy. And he was saying that he wanted to reach out to their enemies, the Romans, and befriend them and love them. And they're saying, we don't want to do that. You're not our Messiah. You're just another false prophet. You sounded good. Yeah, you're a good speaker. And yeah, we have a need but we got carried away here. You're just that same kid that we knew growing up and what you're saying is wrong. You're a false prophet. And they get all riled up and they decide they're going to kill him. Jesus allows them, even as he did at the crucifixion, to take him to the point of the cliff. But then at that point, and we don't know how he does it, but I believe supernaturally he sort of parts the way and he walks away from that situation, even as he could have done at the cross if he wanted to. He walks away from them. John says in John chapter 7 verse 30 in a very similar situation it was not yet his time. But later he would die for their own good and rise from the grave to make it possible for them to come into his kingdom forever if they would yet respond which most didn't but I'd like to believe some at least his family did respond on this occasion. The issue is, didn't meet their expectations. Does that ever happen for us today? I I think so. I mean, I think we want Jesus to be on our political party and to have all the views that we have on everything and to beat all of our enemies. You know, everything that we want. We want him to root for our football team. We want to win at all costs, always, always about us. And we do not want to love those that we see as unlovable. That's hard. On the flip side of it, just like Elijah and Elisha, Jesus is calling us back to what the Bible teaches. And some of us don't want to do that because that might make us unlovable, unpopular with those around us. So we're caught either way. Either we have to reach the unlovable or we may have to become unlovable to do what is right. So how do we resolve these things? Let's look at a couple applications today. The first thing I would suggest we do is that we really get to know Jesus for who he is. I think there was a time early in my life where I would sort of created my own Jesus to fit my own needs. And even today, I find myself on a journey where I want to know him better. I want to know him for who he really is, not just for what the traditions say and what other people say, but what does it say straightforward that he's saying? Do we really know Jesus? Do we know who we're following? Or have we kind of created our own mythical God? I would encourage you to read through Luke, read through Matthew, Mark, and John. Read the passages about Jesus. Interact on them. Come and ask questions. Make sure you really know this God whom you say, and this God-man whom you say that you're following. Then the second thing is I encourage you to get involved in holistically meeting the needs of the people around you. See your job as a ministry every bit as much as mine is. Minister to the people whom God has put in your life. And when appropriate, tell them about Jesus. Find ways that you can get involved in helping in charitable needs in the community. I know our small group is helping with a convalescent hospital. Another group is helping with a modesto gospel mission. Kathy Miller is starting up the Relay for Life program here You know, for people that want to sign up for that. And there's other things. Think about how you can serve to take care of people in your community and still love them and tell them about Christ when it's appropriate. But even as Mitch said earlier, most of all, everybody in this room has 8 to 15 people whom God has supernaturally and strategically placed in your life for you to influence for Him. Who are the people in your life? I have a neighbor who's battling with cancer. Um, there's not much I can do for him right now. I can go over and talk to him and let him know I love him. He's asked me to pray for him and so I have. I encourage you to think through who are the people around you and the needs that they have and how can you care for them as Jesus would. And especially the greatest need is that they would come to know him. That You can't do that. That's not for you to do. You can't make anybody come to know Christ. You just tell them about them when it's appropriate, like you would talk about any other topic. Let God do what he will do. But be praying for them and be open to those opportunities and look for them. Is Jesus meeting your expectations? I've got an answer to that. No, he is not. And I'll tell you why. Everybody in this room has different expectations and all of us are imperfect. In order for him to meet our expectations, he would have to to be a a million different gods. And he will not be a million different gods. He is one. And so when you come to Jesus and you see that he's not meeting your expectation and you feel he's wrong in an area, guess who's wrong? He's the only one that's always right. Everybody else has their plans, and everybody is missing it someplace. He's the only one who's missing it no place. And so we look to him. If we're willing to do that, really willing to surrender to him for who he is, giving up our rights for his, then, then we're where we need to be. They weren't willing to do that. You see, that was the rub, and it's still the rub today. If you are, we've got for you the ABCs of salvation. You begin by admitting that you're a sinner in need of a Savior. You believe that Jesus died on the cross for your sins and rose from the grave. And you choose to follow Christ and place your faith in him alone. And if you want to do those three things, we would love to talk to you about that even at the end today so that you can experience his salvation as it is now here. You know, um, a couple years ago I saw the movie Joshua. I don't know if you ever saw that. It's a movie. Yeshua is Jesus' name in Hebrew. So um, the the English translation would be Joshua. And it's another story about Jesus, what if Jesus were to come today, you know, and he comes back. But in this case, he comes back as a regular man, not George Burns, Morgan Freeman, or some strange child, okay, or animal. So he comes back, and, uh, and when he comes back, he's, you know, a, a good guy. He's everything we would want, and yet the people still reject him. And, and I got to thinking about that, and I thought, you know what that kind of reminds me of is what if Jesus were to come today in Oakdale, Okay. What if Jesus grew up in Oakdale and you knew about his shady family past? What if he had a, just a very regular job and he hadn't gone to college and there was nothing really impressive about him? He didn't have Hollywood looks. But boy, was he a good speaker. And everything he said lined up with what the Bible said. But he was asking you to do things you didn't want to do. Would you reject him? Are you really following him? It's a good thing for us to think about every once in a while, to stop and think, are we following the God we profess to follow? The Super Bowl is here. Most of us, as we found out, except for Kirk Calhoun, really don't care. (laughs) And we will care less if our team loses. But I hope that your life has changed and is changing because salvation is here. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that salvation is here. And that, as the song says, it lives in Jesus, and it, as we come to know you, then it will live in us, and you will guide us to do the things that we've talked about today. I pray that each person here experiences that salvation and all the joy that goes with it, but I know that it can be tough to get past ourselves sometimes and come into that relationship with you. So I pray that each person would wrestle with um, their own beliefs and make sure that they align their beliefs with you today. In your name we pray, amen.